This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And are you going to talk that way the whole show? <laughs> what, am I talking weird? I thought I was I was trying to talk with breath support. I was trying to talk less like Bucky Beaver, which is what I feel I usually sound like on the show. It's like you were trying to sound like a, a matinee idol. Hi, I'm... Hi, Bob. I, I'm beautiful Babs BB. Hi, Bob. I am... A matinee idol. I don't know if you have heard. Just because you had to slick your hair back so you could see (laughs) in front of you does not mean you're a matinee idol. It means you're a sheepdog. (laughs) I we we record multiple episodes at a stretch, and by the end of this session, this current session, I will have to put the headband on. Now I am new to headbands as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you, COVID. I, because I have not been to have my hair cut in three months now. And I we can see each other dur- over FaceTime because yes. that's part of the elements of how we record. So you're, I know I'm going to be mocked and ridiculed. I'm holding up the, the blue headband right now that they will see me wear as soon as the product in my hair starts to dry. And I will begin to look like the villain from a 1980s thriller that I have looked like for several weeks now. If you can recreate that Anna Wintour look that you got the other day, that was my favorite. Well, that was, uh, you put the headband on and then I'm able to divide my bangs in the middle and drape them over the front of the headband. I also thought like teen girl from a video game was the other look, but you went with Anna Wintour because yeah, you and I Anna have Wintour different was cultural references. Anna Wintour was definitely the look that it, it, um, it, that's how it looked to me. Okay. We'll share the picture on the internet and let people decide for themselves. So the answer is yes, Eric. I am going to talk like this for the entire episode. Okay. Do you know why? Do you know why, why I'm going to talk like this? Why are you going to talk like that, Christopher? Well, first, before I get into what we are doing uh, for Stop Crime TV like Club, I'm going to stop talking like that because we made a promise on our last episode, which we're going to keep. We referenced a wonderful Facebook comment from a party person. <laughs> we confirmed that it was Cindy Conforti. Is that how we pronounce her name? Cindy I, I think so. Comfort- Comforti. I think that's how I was going. Cindy, feel free to type in the correct pronunciation and... Maybe at some point we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll actually why. check but, it and confirm it before we record. Cindy is of the mind that one does not need to watch the episodes that we discuss here at True Crime TV Club. She actually conducted a little experiment and watched a Dateline episode we covered and said it was so slow and repetitious that from here on out she will just be going with our version. So that will be the Cindy Conforti rule. So this is practically a public service that we're doing. We're allowing people to enjoy um, true crime television programs without having to experience the, um, the necessary evils of the way in which they are assembled. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And since we are back to True Crime TV Club this week, we do it every other week. If you're new to the Christopher and Eric podcast, uh, we thought it was good to give that usual disclaimer. If you want to stop the podcast and and violate Cindy's rule and watch the episode that we are about to discuss. Because that is half the fun. It is a series entitled A Crime to Remember. The episode title is Time Bomb. It is season one, episode four, and as we as what as happened on our last episode, this will be expected because we knew what this episode was about going in. The last time this was a surprise, we're going into the air again, aren't we, Eric Shaw? Yes, I found this one and suggested it because I know that Christopher, despite his rather harsh dismissal of himself, is actually a fan of all things airline driven, including crashes, but all of them. I am. I am. I, you know, I'm look. I, I have started. Uh, you're a Kindle reader too, and so you know this. A Kindle user, I should say. It allows you to make folders of your books, like digital collections of your books. And I now yes, have. It's very helpful. An enrichment folder, right, where I buy those sort of let's say self-help adjacent titles that are nonfiction, have a somewhat of a scientific basis, and I put them in this folder, and I, and I go to them, and so. I, I read a couple books on breathing, the new science of breathing and breath support, and maybe why I sound like a matinee idol, because I've improved my breathing. That could be it. Better breathing. Next up in the enrichment folder is the negativity bias, right? And I think you pointed it out just now. I love commercial aviation. I love planes. I love the energy in airports, all that sort of stuff. But I tend right. to fixate on the negative side of it, which are airplane crashes. And the negative side of everything else in the entire world, but also <laughs> on airplanes. Set myself, <laughs> myself up. But is that the only reason you picked this series? I think there was also something about the the a crime to remember title. I was sort of looking at you. I was looking at the different episodes and different descriptions, and there were a lot of interesting stories. Uh, there was several that I would have suggested from this particular series. I think there are three or four seasons, so it's it's pretty promising territory in terms of the stories it looked like. And then I saw the one that was airline related, and I thought, um, oh well, that's that'll be perfect for uh, Christopher. Will love that, and why not? Also, we were talking about because we were looking for um, it's. The summer months when we're doing this recording and when this will first air. And so we were thinking about vacation times and vacation destinations because a lot of us are staying home currently. But um, my favorite J.M. Barry quote is God gave us memories so we could have roses in December. Um, mm-hmm. And this way, God gave us memories so we could go on vacation during quarantine, I guess, would be the uh, the modern update of bastardization of that wonderful quote. But not this vacation that we're going to talk about. Because no, I don't think I, any of I us... I think true crime TV. But, but we did want to get vacation-based. And so right. we've done a couple so far. Last time it was people who were camping in the woods. And this time it's a plane trip. In 1955. 1955. And as I always do when we begin these, if there is a high reenactment threshold in the episode, I weigh in with a universal condemnation or line of praise. I would say opens with the most frightening reenactment I've ever seen in one of the episodes we've discussed. Artfully directed, disturbing, uh, unnecessary voiceover i would say that we have the we have the sort of mainline narration which is giving us the facts and then we have what's apparently an actor 
performing as if she is giving a period voiceover as somebody who lived through the time of this crime. I didn't need all that. Um, I was, I thought it was, I thought it added to it. I I was really, I, this series, like, not only do the storylines seem promising, but the series seemed promising because I thought the production values were really high. I thought finding that way, rather than having the narration be just, you know, disembodied crime reporter tells us a story, having it come from that sort of personal kind of um, point of view, it was very Ken Burns. It was very, you know, Confederate widow writes letter to husband. And we read that aloud to set the scene for people who are being the victims of war. And this was somebody who had been living on the ground as this plane crash happened, more or less in her front yard. I don't know if she's a real person, though. Do we think she was actually a real person or sort of just a, an amalgam? They never, they never defined that. So I would guess that she was a fictionalization, but she talked very specifically about her husband participating in um, the crime. And then they showed pictures of, which I assumed the way they were doing it, they were showing pictures of her husband. So there was a sense that it might actually be... Um, you know, not uh, that it wasn't the actual person because enough time has passed that she would be really old, if not having moved on to, um, you know, her place under Mount Shasta. Um, but, uh, <laughs> See our last, last episode. episode. Watch last episode. Listen to the last episode if you want to know what that means. But, um, but, but she did seem credible as a real person. So if she was fictionalized, she was very well done. She was based in the actual facts of what happened. And again, that would seem to me a very imaginative way of telling this story without just having it be, you know, um, Ken or one of the gang. Right, right, sure. Again, my reservations about that particular voiceover notwithstanding, I agree with you about the overall quality of the show. And I think I am looking forward to us doing more episodes of A Crime to Remember. Yeah. the highest, probably the highest quality interviews of anything we've done. Who they were, who they were interviewing, were truly experts. They were interviewing uh, somebody from the Rand Corporation, which is a sort, of, I think, a kind of hoity-toity yeah. think tank in DC. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Because this crime took place in 1955, maybe that's why you just referenced the, what the age of the participants would be now. Not a lot of, uh, not any interviews with anyone who was personally connected to the case. No, so that had already been that. I think that ship had sailed, which is sort of the point of the crime to remember thing. And the person remembering this crime was, in fact, the woman who was narrating this story. So whether sure. she was real or not, that was sort of the way in which we, they that we came into. It's her memory, and what you had that appealed to the the nerdy college professor's son and me is you had a lot of, of academic analysis and a certain level of, a, of detachment from the case and not a lot of potentially exploitive trying to get people to relive their trauma on camera and break down in an interview as the camera. Yeah, pushes no, it. it was a very interesting look at, um, at the crime. And one of the things that initially appealed to me about the, um, the description was it was the first, instance of this in U.S. airline history. So this was also an historic event in its own terrible way. 
Right. And without giving away too much of it before we get into the, the summary of it, it is seen as one of the first marriages of an individual's human evil and modern technology. That's actually, yes, I think, an that, exact that's quote very from well one said. Yes. Subject. I think they did point that out. Yes, that is really true. Okay. Longmont, Colorado, 1955. A title card appears on screen telling us where we are. We begin to hear the female voiceover that we just described. It's a woman working in the kitchen of her suburban house. She hears a, a terrible sound, a thunderous roar in the sky outside of her home. She opens her front door and in what I have already described as one of the most disturbing reenactments and artfully done disturbing reenactments, a burning airplane seat is sitting in her front yard and she stares at it as uh, the voiceover goes on to describe how debris fell out of the sky and cascaded onto multiple properties in the area. Uh, we then begin to introduce uh, multiple interview subjects who are also going to guide, uh, guide us through the story. We meet Andrew J. Field, who is the author of a book, Mainliner Denver, The Bombing of Flight 629. Spoiler alert there in the title. <laughs> um, Quinn John Tam is a retired uh, FBI special agent. Adrian Rain is the author of The Anatomy of Violence. Brian Jenkins is a senior advisor for the Rand Corporation. Jennifer Sargent, an attorney and former district court judge, at the very beginning of this, she uh, seems younger than most of the other interview subjects. Yeah. I wasn't entirely sure why she was in there, and then it becomes clear at the end of the episode Yes, why. Um, the thing that I think most stuck out at me about this episode, and this again was really um, artfully disturbing is maybe not the best way to put it, but atmospheric, descriptive, and haunting is they describe the way all of these men who lived in Longmont poured out of their houses with flashlights to begin searching this enormous debris that field. Was such a beautiful image, that sense of the the search, the, the flashlight were, thing. Uh, yeah, and these were World War II veterans who had seen some things. So they were battle-hardened, but a lot of this turned up some of their past traumas. So they were instructed or what they agreed to do is when they found the location of a body, they would stand next to it and extend their, hold their flashlight up to mark their location. And in short order, this field basically became a blanket of twinkling flashlights. Yeah. All of these points of lights being, as you looked out at this and they did it, they recreated it. However they did it. There's this, all of these little lights. There were, there was, it's a smaller plane because it was an older time, but it was like 40, Four people or something was 44 right? people uh, were on yeah. board the flight. So 39 passengers, five crew. Lights. Yeah. 39 passengers and five crew. It's It doesn't take a lot of work. They say when a plane hits the earth, it usually is going incredibly fast and the debris field is very small and often there is a crater. Right away, this is, a I think, a six-mile-wide debris field. Yeah, six square miles of de debris scattered all over the place. And it's interesting because this was really like new territory for the aviation world. And the I, I don't know if it was the NTSB at that time, but the, their decision to, um, to approach this investigation in this way. Right. 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So as you mentioned earlier, we are early in the history of American... Uh, commercial airline travel. Anyway, uh, and certainly this is a, a, a seminal event for the industry because this has never really happened before. They, they don't have a lot of experience. They talked about one other plane crash that had happened as a result of somebody um, traveling with nitroglycerin in their luggage, which turned out badly for the yes. passengers. But, but so their decision to find the pieces and Get, take it to a warehouse and reassemble the plane, that seemed really kind of modern. And this would have been like maybe one of the first few times they'd ever really done it. Yeah, they, they, I, it sounded like they were pioneering a method of grid search, which became commonplace in air. They were going to reconstruct the aircraft, right? And so right. in order to do that, they had to map the debris field in squares that were 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet. And then everything from that square would be transported in its own, I don't know, container or whatever to a warehouse where they would reconstruct the aircraft using all of that organized debris. This was a United Airlines plane. These were the days when United Airlines was trying to lure people away from train travel. Airplane travel was not seen as very safe. I don't know if you know the story of the Comet, which was the the after World War II, the British made a really aggressive attempt the to enter. The square windows. Yeah, and they developed a plane called the Comet with square windows that caused a total break apart in midair. It was a catastrophe and claimed a lot of lives. This is not a Comet. This is an aircraft that blew, appeared to blow apart in midair. And so they bring up the sharpshooter example from old because that person had stored nitroglycerin in the suitcase, which had detonated when the plane was airborne. So they're thinking, did something similar happen here? That said, the planes were also fueled at this time by something that one of our FBI agents in an interview says is aviation gasoline. Is it different from jet fuel? I don't honestly know. I think it is like even jet fuel is is also lighter, but I think both of those are more akin to kerosene than gasoline. They're they're headed in a different direction. They're not the same kind of. They're much right. more combustible. Uh, so it's volatile, right? So they're, yes, they're very they're, volatile. Right. I think that was the point. Uh, they engage Speaking in close... as not a scientist who has absolutely know, no idea right? what Whenever he's talking about. we do that, about. I'm just like, why didn't you friggin' Google this? But, you know, like maybe some of our party people will Google it and maybe I'll Google it before we do our next recording. They examine the metal because the type of warping and damage to the metal can tell you something about the type of explosion. And after six or seven days, it's clear that fuel didn't cause this explosion. They can tell from the, from the physical evidence. Well, it was clear that the explosion came from inside... And it yes. was inside a luggage compartment. The right? number four cargo hold, which becomes important. That is the center of the explosion. In this day and age, getting back to how early this was in the history of air travel, there was no examination of luggage before it was loaded onto planes. It was only evaluated for weight, each suitcase. There, uh, We talked about the sharpshooter incident. That's when they bring it up. So nobody That was that really guy true had. until 9-11. Like, I, I was... 
It was the locker That really didn't change after this. Like, 9-11 was when they started carrying what you had in your luggage. But prior to that, there really wasn't much of a reaction to what you were bringing on the plane, other than weight. And if you're if you're too young to remember the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which happened over Lockerbie, Scotland, uh, which was later uh, Libyan terrorists were convicted of that terrorist attack. But there was a scandal around that there maybe was some luggage X-ray happening, but it was very scattershot and security experts had managed to get through whatever defenses they were with Pan Am planes to try to make the point to Pan Am planes over the years and they had ignored all of their warnings. So yeah, and it's really like remember I don't do they still ask you questions about did somebody else pack your luggage yeah. for you? Have remember you that? and it has it been in your sight the whole time. Like yeah. they they do that. Yes, that is very much standard practice. All of those things have become sort of codified since then, but prior to that, yeah, I remember when I traveled just prior to 9/11 happening, I moved to England for a while and took an enormous bag with me and weighed a ton and you know, like that, their reaction to it was entirely about the weight and nobody really gave a damn what was inside of it. Uh, that said, the investigators start to detect a sulfurous firecracker-like smell on the recovered metal that they have been studying. And they realize that this smell has to be one thing, dynamite. They also find wow. copper wiring that's not part of the plane. And this has to be an ignition source for the dynamite. And so, and this is just a few days. I was, I was yeah. kind of amazed I mean, this was quickly. incredibly speedy. Uh, but they, they've arrived at the inevitable conclusion that the plane has been purposely bombed. This is the first time this has ever happened in the United States. Uh, none of the victims, they say, seemed like a high-profile potential target. But they do mention at the beginning of the show that one of the passengers included... Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was president at the time, his former secretary of education, I think, or some sort of some former cabinet level or yeah, some sort of yeah. political person, but not a controversial figure. And, you know, there and I think this is when they cited the example of um, the guy bringing the nitroglycerin on the plane. And so there was yes. some thought that it might actually have been about somebody packing something that had exploded that um or there was some well, cargo on the plane that might have exploded or that it might even have been a suicidal choice from one of one of the uh the passengers i think once they found the copper wiring they realized somebody had actually constructed an ignition source for the dynamite and and that that pushed everything forward but they 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 turned to the unions, right? That's where their first thought is there had been some union strife and the pilot of this flight had actually crossed a picket line. Yeah, uh, he, they made a point of him arriving late that the plane was, um, that he got there at the very last minute to take off. FBI field they agents. Did a, they did a lovely job, I would just like to say, of, de, of detailing who was on the plane. There was yes. a little kid going to meet his father for the first time in economic. They talked about, because there weren't that many passengers, everybody who was on the plane to give you a real sense of the cost of this terrible moment, but also the complete, you know, like that nobody on the plane was a particularly high profile person with the exception of this one, not very controversial, I'd never even heard of him, um, official from the Eisenhower administration. They also really 
in the in service of doing what you just described, they give you a sense of the waiting area, which is going to become an important detail. But they also talk about what the atmosphere of passenger plane travel was like back then. Everybody dressed in their Sunday best. They dressed like yes. they were going to church or the or the theater. They don't dress like that at the theater. Yes, anymore, it was you know really I mean? a. It was a big deal. But uh-huh. everybody was also afraid. Like as we said earlier, flying was not seen as safe. It was new. And in light of this, and I don't. I don't remember these in my lifetime. These might have been gone by the time I was a kid. The insurance companies ran kiosks in the airport where you could literally buy a life insurance policy from a vending machine. You put a quarter in, your documents came out, you'd sign the document, and then you'd deposit it back into the machine so that the proof of purchase didn't incinerate if you did in a plane crash. I just think that is the most morbid thing. I I would be surprised if that's not still available. Like probably in a more electronic way. Travel insurance is certainly still available um, in terms of a lot of levels of, you know, like even if you're, you're force majeure, even if your vacation gets screwed up, you can insure it so that you recoup some of your expenses that much, you know, and that probably mostly happens online, but captive market in um, some terminal somewhere at an airport. Mm-hmm. Give us your, put your money into this machine. I would be willing, I, I could be wrong, but I would be willing to bet that it is still possible to purchase some form of flight insurance from some kind of vending service um, in the airport, even now. But yeah, in the olden times, it was a much more sort of, uh, you know, like six quarters and you could buy minimum amount of insurance from from a vending machine. I thought that was, but the depositing the, uh, the, uh, the policy into the machine. So that signing it so that if you got, if you got, uh, blown up in the plane, you would be, you wouldn't lose your policy or your loved ones would be provided for. That was a very trusting. Um, right. Because how would anybody know except the insurance company? And, uh, you know, I'm not for six quarters. I'm not telling you. Um, right. (laughs) So uh, the investigation zeroes in on the number four cargo hold, and they discovered that a baggage handler really in Chi- interesting way. That yeah, the baggage handler in, in Chicago, which is where the plane originated from, calls the Denver airport after the plane leaves Chicago and says, "I left my keys in that cargo hold. Can you do a search for them once the plane lands?" And to do this, the Denver baggage handlers remove everything just from the number four cargo hold. They never find the poor guy's keys. No. But as a consequence, the only items, uh, only items originating from Denver are loaded into the number four cargo hold. So they've got some sense, some organized sense of what is in that cargo hold. So this was a really lucky break for the investigation. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that... They knew that the only somebody from the plane who was traveling from Denver, Denver, um, Chicago, it was Chicago going to take off from Denver, but it Chicago to Denver. Yes. Right. But the Denver part is the part where we're talking about, right? Well, right. Absolutely. Right. They, they took all the baggage out of the number four compartment after it landed in Denver at the request of the Chicago baggage handler. So the only baggage in that compartment was added in Denver is what I'm saying. And that really narrows their suspect pool to just the people who were on the plane from there. And only three Denver passengers checked luggage. 
Which narrows it even further. Which really narrows it. And only one of the luggages that was checked was one that might conceivably have been a suspicious element. It was a heavy bag, as it's described. Right. And it was a bag checked by an elderly woman named Daisy King, who was on the way to see her grandkids in Alaska. So yeah, her daughter and her grandchildren. She was traveling, I guess, at the holidays. It looks like it was approaching Christmas time. Was it? Did they give us the date at the beginning of the episode? I, I had that remember. sense of it. I had that sense of it. Like, but But I could have been mistaken. Well, the FBI zeroes in on this family and discovers that they have a drive-in restaurant business with car hops called the Crown A. This is the era of cruising and drive-ins, which I don't believe either one of us can remember very well. <laughs> I well, <laughs> I just I was gonna give you. I still remember you... Britain's Neck Park and Blow. <laughs> we used to call it. It was the place. The city was called Britain's Neck, and they had a. a drive-in, a car hop drive-in called the Park and Blow. And you would drive up and blow your horn when you were ready to order and somebody would come out to your car and take your order. There also was an A&W in Natchitoches that we were fond of going to. And I think, but I'm not certain that they roller skated, but they came out to your car just the same and they put a thing on the, a little sort of tray that latched onto the door of your car and put your um, hamburgers and stuff on that and you could eat in your car. Why that would seem like a good thing, I, I can't really imagine, but our car couldn't have been any stinkier than it already was. <laughs> I guess it wasn't really, there was no downside. Uh, and the interior it, was entirely made of like pig iron, so <laughs> you could just hose it down. History's Mysteries with Eric Shawquin. Why the right? hell did we eat in our giant dangerous cars? I just don't know. It's really like it wasn't that pleasant a place to be. Why would we want to eat there? But whatever. But they were popular, so the family opened one. Daisy has two children from different marriages, a son named Jack Graham and a daughter named Helen. And I didn't get her last name. I put it in our show notes as Habutzel, but I don't think that's correct. <laughs> I believe, even though I'm not sure they explicitly say so, Helen is the daughter who lived in Alaska, who is who Daisy was on her way to yes. visit. She was going to fly she from, traveled to, to she traveled Seattle. She from Alaska. It was, that's true. And Daisy's ticket was booked from Seattle, to Seattle from Denver and then on to Anchorage. They say right away, growing up with Daisy was hard. Their financial circumstances were difficult. Daisy's husband, husband died. died. Yeah, mm. during the depths of the Depression, her husband died. The daughter, Helen, was placed in a religious prep school, and the son was placed in an orphanage. And this is where they take a little deliberate gap in the history of the King family, which they're going to fill in later. So foreshadowing, uh, after Daisy King's third husband dies, she inherits some money, and she decides to try to do right by the son that she put in an orphanage. That's Jack. So she buys him a house. She creates a basement apartment for herself in the house. And um, she builds that business so that he can be the, the manager. Helen describes her mother as someone who could never be happy in life, even when things were going well. That's a description that can apply, I think, to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, and it's a lesson to us all. Absolutely. She suffered mood swings. She'd attempted suicide. Huge red flag for the FBI agents. Was, was this a suicide by bombing becomes a, a theory they then need to explore 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. Jack has a lot to say about his mother's habits around packing her own suitcases. He says she insisted on packing her own luggage, that she did pack ammunition because when she was in Alaska, she planned it on doing some caribou hunting, which for I a know it was her- like, wow, this is a dimension of Daisy that I hadn't been, um, been, uh, been totally expecting because she looks like she's got a little hat with the net, the lace on the front of it and all. And so, yeah, but she's going to Alaska to go caribou hunting. Uh, Interesting thing about her being Daisy. One of the things the daughter says is that she was not comfortable being called mom. She liked, she preferred to be called Daisy Mm -hmm. um, by the kids. So it was a, it was a distant, she wasn't big on being hogged. She was, it was an unusual relationship that they had with her. The other thing I will add is that Jack's wife also said that the, she was touchy about packing her own bags. She had taken her a sweater and she had to hand it to Daisy. Daisy would put it and decide whether or not she was going to put it in the bag herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it seemed substantiated. So I, I think at this point, because the, of the way that they were depicting Daisy, it was looking like maybe it was a suicide, but like, right. Daisy, or because of the ammunition, perhaps once again, another accident, but that, that I don't know if this was prior to the discovery of the wire being the same or not being the same as the plane, but I think they had pretty much ruled out an accident with the wire. Yes. The discovery of the copper wiring wiring. had really ruled it out. Another detail Jack says is that on the day of the flight, he was late. He was running behind he wasn't late but daisy was afraid that he was going to be she late was because he had the last close. minute getting to the airport right they were they depicted them being in the car and there's lots of reenactments happening here and they did interviews with the family but i thought they did a pretty good job of them but it was reenactments at the expense of archival photographs and you know how i am i love my archival photographs and i doubtful they're going to have archival footage of something like this in 1955 but they did have some photographs which were great they did have some great but they were few and far between uh they arrive at the airport jack says that daisy asked him to go remember the insurance kiosk we talked about earlier daisy tells jack to buy three life insurance policies from the vending machine one for jack the other for the sister helen and the third for daisy's sister who i don't believe is ever named or we never mentioned her again each for the lowest amount possible So as the FBI is looking into Daisy's past, they discover that there may actually be another bomb in it in September of 1955, which I believe was September of that year. So, yeah, yeah, maybe this was the holidays, Eric. Yeah, not that long ago. 
There was a large fire at the Crown A drive-in, the family's business, and they following said following ex- an explosion caused by a gas leak, and there was an insurance settlement. The business also, by the way, is losing money, and Daisy has been blaming Jack for this. Oh, also, she's making noise about selling the restaurant, which would have which given will Daisy not benefit Jack at all. Not at all. Daisy would have gotten everything from the sale of the business. And Jack would be not only not richer, but not employed anymore either. And she had caused him to stop being uh, employed to come work for her at the restaurant that she'd bought. So she was his landlord and his boss and his um, immediate neighbor. She lived in the same house with him. So it was quite the relationship the two of them had. And the other thing that they talked about was the nature of that relationship over over the years. Bad. The approximate value of Daisy's estate in today's money, we should also say, would be, was, would have been close to a million dollars. That estate, if she died, would go to Helen and Jack. Just going to put that out there before we proceed. So there's also the discovery that Jack, did you already say Jack worked at the same insurance company that had been insuring the Crown A? They don't really I go didn't... deep into that detail. They just sort of put that in there. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Well, they're talking about their growing suspicion because the other thing they found out that was that Jack had a history of writing bad checks that she had bought him out of. So he was also had some questionable criminal past. And one of the things they discovered was after um, Daisy remarried and had money enough to move the kids back in, she left Jack in foster care. She didn't want him. Come back to get him right. That was the deliberate gap in the history that they don't fill in until later in the episode. And she, yeah, it was a it was a hard it was a bit to swallow. After her, the husband, the rich husband, died, and she inherited the money. Then it was like she was trying to make it up to him for the years. But there was a long period of her absence. But when um, she actually first by necessity. Um, because she was poor and didn't have a choice. She had to work and couldn't care for him. But later, when she could have cared for him, she still didn't want to. Well, when she was servicing that rich husband, she didn't want the kid around. And maybe the yeah. husband didn't. And, he, you know, it was, yeah, bad thing. I don't know. They didn't explain that. But you could see where that would, what an interesting twist to their particular relationship. Right. Because they present it as, oh, when she finally had the money, she went back and did right by him. It's like, mm, it's actually not that clean. Yeah. yeah. This is, again, one of those issues where, like, I don't know how much I trust an hour condensation of a case like this to deliver the perfect timeline of the investigation. But at this point, they say the FBI goes back to Jack and his wife, Gloria, for further questioning. And they press Gloria a little bit um, with a sugar coating, saying they just want to revisit the day that they were all packing, that, she, that Daisy was packing her suitcase and everybody was getting ready. And she says, oh, you know, Jack did something really nice for his mother on that day. I forgot. And they're like, what? He gave her a big wrapped present. And didn't tell her that he was giving it to her. He sneaked it into her bag. Oh, is that what it was? As a surprise for when he put it in the trunk of the car so that he took the bag out to the car so that when he put the bag in, he opened her bag and put the present in and closed it up so that it would be a surprise for her. 
Which nice, apparently, I guess she was pretty surprised. I guess so, if she, uh, if she had time. Anyway, the FBI uses this as cause to search Jack's house and hidden behind a piece of furniture, they find an insurance policy from the airport kiosk for over $30,000 with Jack Graham as the beneficiary. That is way in excess of the minimal policy he claimed he bought at Daisy's request when they were in the airport together. They also find spools of copper wire in the home, similar to the wire found at the crash site. They locate a hardware store employee who sold Jack the wire. In a different town. In a different town. It's 12 days after the crash, and they basically. I mean, this is the most amazing investigation ever. Like, this is moving along at light speed. Under questioning, Jack completely cracks. I don't know how long that took, but it's presented yeah, as pretty but it quickly. it didn't seem very, yeah. It didn't seem to take very long. He initially resisted. They asked him about the insurance policy, and he said, well, there must be some mistake or some confusion. And then they said, and the copper wire and the dynamite? And he was like, okay. He says Daisy went after him at the restaurant, and he'd had enough. They had a history of fighting really brutally verbally at the restaurant in front of employees. And he said, finally, he decided he just couldn't take it anymore. He used a six volt battery and electric caps to explode the dynamite. He'd found a timer. And now we are we're about to. This is the the three most haunting. There are three parts that got me coming up. Okay, he found a timer. It was an appliance timer that had 60 minutes on it. So remember why he was <laughs> late taking his mother to the airport? To get her to the airport and on that plane. Oh my God. So he waited so the timer wouldn't run out and the bomb wouldn't go off before that plane took off. This, by the way, I talked about the Pan Am 103 bombing earlier. The, the timer played a factor in that because the flight, this, it was a 747, was delayed on the ground at Heathrow. The timer was set for the bomb to go off over the ocean, in which case all the evidence of the of the terrorist attack would have presumably been swallowed by the sea. But instead, because of the delay, it went off over Scotland and they were able to recover all the pieces of the wreckage. So back to Daisy and Jack. They get to the airport. She goes to check her bag. The oh, gate, my God. The gate agent notifies her that the bag is 30 pounds overweight and that she can either pay a fee or unpack and ship some items by freight. So literally what was happening was four people, the gate agent, Daisy, Jack, and his wife, Gloria, are standing there having a conversation about whether or not to open this suitcase when Jack knows there's literally a ticking bomb inside of it. Literally, like minutes away. Like, you know, like, and he probably has a rough idea of how long it is, but nerves of fucking steel to stand there calmly and say, well, you don't want, they might, you don't want to get there and find out you don't have the thing you need. And you don't know, you don't know when the freight will get there. You might just as well pay the extra and not have to worry about it. But that's pretty ice water in your veins to be able to do in that kind of circumstance. And she agrees. She pays the fee. The ice water in the veins thing to me, in addition, they're, 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 they're not, it's not a competition because the guy is cold as ice. He sat there in that waiting area with all of those people he was about to kill. Yeah. All of them. He was surrounded. Uh, there was a little boy, couples, all of, uh, you know, I, 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 he just sat there and waited for her to get on the plane, knowing all those people were going to die with her. Yeah, it didn't matter to him at all that he was going to kill all of those people because he wanted her money and he was sick of her mouth. But also, I think, like, 
So they go into the sort of psychological analysis of him, but there's like an act. There is such rage in that. Like, oh my god! I think there's a larger desire for vengeance. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was left in an orphanage by his mother once she married well. Not when she could when she couldn't afford him, she put him in an orphanage. When she married well, she left him in the orphanage. She it's, left him in foster care. So who yeah. knows what happened to him in foster care? Yeah. That can be a nightmare of its own. They didn't explore that. You know, they so just make he it just clear tells them that, that he did it. Yeah. And then remember how earlier I said I was a little startled that there was a lawyer or, or I think she was a former judge or lawyer. Yeah, she was. A, yeah, I remember her. She was cool. At the time of the explosion, this is one of those statements where I can't believe you have to say this, but it's the truth. There's no federal law on the books against blowing up a commercial airliner. So does that mean it's okay? Like, I know. You know what I mean? Like, I would think my thought was then you charge him with 44 counts of premeditated murder rather than. Then, you know, like, okay, like he still murdered all those people. So it's still murder, whether there's a law about. You know, is there a law against shooting somebody in the forehead? Is that on the books? Like, right. or is killing somebody just against the law? I, I guess it's important to have a law about blowing up planes, but killing people seems like that's covered. So the district attorney decides instead to file a single murder charge. And you're right. That was like, why not file 44 murder charges? I guess I I, because it was so easy to prove that he had intent to murder and he confessed. Daisy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He he's he, he's found guilty. Like there's a, he's confessed, there's a mountain of evidence. Boom done. Uh he's sentenced to and death sentenced in the gas chamber. And he's executed 14 months later. Again, the speed at which all of this unfolded. It was 14 months from the plane crash to his execution. It was the most it was the velocity at which this travels is was the, maybe the most startling part of the whole trip. And the next year, Congress passed a law that uh, Dwight Eisenhower signed into uh, law to outlawing blowing up a commercial airline. Yeah. And I mean, this case traumatized the country. There had never been anything like it at the time. I mean, this is sort of seems like one of many to our perspective. Now we were talking about the bombing of, of Pan Am 103 earlier, or I was talking about it cause I'm a plane crash nut. Yeah. But th- this was really, as, as we said at the outset, one of the commentators says this was the first marriage of a single psychopath's evil with the destructive capacity of modern technology. I want to, I have a personal vendetta against one person and I can kill 45 people in an instant because this relatively new type of aircraft is speeding through the air this quickly. And all it needs to blow apart is this ignition source, which, you know, I just, it was, it was was interesting to me because it talked to me about the, the way in which the technology changed everybody. Like nobody, the reaction generally across the board at the time was nobody could imagine somebody doing it. The reason there wasn't a law on the books was because that nobody could imagine somebody doing this. And it occurred to me how technology changes our view. Like maybe, maybe like there's no Jack the Ripper before there's newspapers, you know, Mm. like had there been serial killers all along, but the newspaper changed the nature of our understanding of the serial killer because he was involved with and reported on in this mass media kind of way. You know what I mean? The way that, that technology changes our own view. Like, so maybe somebody 
you know, maybe the Donner Party was killed by one single guy who was really hungry. Um, <laughs> you'd, but but we don't know that because right. there's no real coverage of it. You know, but maybe there were other mass killings that were happening sort of off the books because the world was not as interconnected as it has become more and more over time. That that just that fact, right? The fact that this was a means for killing this this group of people and we were all aware of it because of the, you know, the nature of, of the um of the world at that moment. But if I had planted a dynamite charge in a railroad bridge mm-hmm. um um a hundred years earlier and killed everybody on the ra- on that train mm-hmm. would it necessarily have been traced to me as a person or even understood you know like w- how long would it have taken the news of those deaths to even reach the east coast where they all left from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on their way to california do you know what i mean like yeah the, i think there's the also interface an element between technology and and our understanding of the crime itself advances over time. Absolutely. I think on uh, another element of it is that the the faster the technology goes and the greater the risk in the technology, the more the uh, target window widens. Like the example between the rail bridge, I have to either plant the bomb directly on the rail bridge or make sure the timer goes off right as the train is passing over it, as opposed to there's a three-hour time period where the plane is above a certain uh, number of feet where if the bomb goes off, it'll kill everybody. Like your vulnerability goes up with certain, yeah. in certain ways. The, the, just having to use a kitchen timer that only had an hour on it. Like that yeah. was my God, that would, that still blows me away. That particular element of the, of the case. It was such a haunting story on so many different levels, but it was, I think really well handled by the, by the show. I, think I thought it was very well told, and it made me very intrigued to see other shows from this particular series. I, the production values were high. The way that the story unfolded was high. The amount of evidence and proof and the way that it was assembled, obviously it's going to be selective and they'll leave out details to guide you to the place they want you to be. It's only a 45-minute show, but, but, you know, my goodness, they did a good job of putting it together and telling us that story in the in the amount of time that they had. Absolutely. So you heard it here first, folks. Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club will be doing episodes of A Crime to Remember in the Future. What, do they have three I, seasons? I think so. And the, many of the crimes that were described looked fascinating, and I would be interested in hearing more about. Absolutely. But, and if you won't look at the descriptions and see any that you think would be interesting to hear about, we're pretty much open on this series we to really like are. Uh, and then this weighing is a, in. So a good time to remind people that the Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show, TDPS, stands for the Dinner Party Show, and that is the name of the network that produces this podcast you're listening to now. The Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show is a great place to communicate with us. You can also send emails to Eric at eric at the dinner party show.com. If you want to ask him his advice about anything anonymously and you don't want it appearing on Facebook where everyone can see it and you want your name separated from the question, this is a great way to get in touch with him too. Right. If you want to be anonymous, say that you want to be anonymous and you can send the email or you can just post questions right on the Facebook page and get everybody's opinion about it because, you know, I don't know who, why am I so smart? Absolutely. <laughs> and well, you are very smart. Otherwise I wouldn't be friends with you, but 
Uh, the next week we will be talking about a lot of comments and responses we got on Facebook from the party people. We asked people to share with us recollections and memories of their best summer. And we're going to talk about theirs and ours on the next episode. And until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.